Philippians. We're going to begin Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We are continuing in our series as we study through the book of Philippians, as we look at the Christ-centered mind that brings about Christian living. Philippians chapter 2, the tag for today's message is can we all just get along? Can we all just get along? Can you, Cheryl, can you turn me down a little bit, please? Or at least up here. Can't we all just get along? We're going to be looking at the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2. So if you would follow along with me in your Bible, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, go ahead and just bow your head and join me in prayer, and then we will get started in our lesson this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you for all of the mothers that are represented here, Lord, and Lord, for their examples that they have set before us. Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word, that the truths of scripture would come alive, that we would be challenged, that we would be convicted, that we would be transformed and renewed through the preaching of your word, God. I pray, Lord, that if there's any distractions here this morning, that you would remove them, that we would be able to focus on your words and on the message that you would empty me of self, Lord, that you would use me as an empty vessel, Lord, to make Christ big, God. I pray if there's anybody here this morning that does not know you as Savior, that today would be the day of salvation, Lord. Lord, we love you and thank you for all you do. In Christ's name, amen. Can we all just get along? As we begin chapter two this morning, we are once again confronted and reminded of the importance of unity within the body of Christ. This is a theme that I've hit on a couple of times as we work through the first chapter of Philippians chapter 1. However, as we get into chapter 2, the Apostle Paul digs in a little bit deeper. And not only does he call the church at Philippi and calls Christians to unity, but he reveals to them the secret to how to attain unity. Unity is a key component. It's a, it's a core principle of the Christian life. In Psalms 133, David wrote, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You know, our triune God is the perfect example of unity. Existing forever, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and perfect, divine, pure unity. And as Christians, we are united in Christ. Despite our differences, despite our backgrounds, despite where we came from or where we're at right now, we share that commonality. That is where we converge. That's where our lives come together. It's in the person and the work of Christ. As we looked at the beginning of the Philippian church, if you recall, the founding members of the Philippian church were a merchant 
lady who would have probably been prestigious and had lots of money, a slave girl and a blue-collar jailer. But as we speak about unity and Christian unity, what I want to remind us this morning is that it is only through Christ and through the truths of God's word that we can truly be united. We're not, we're not seeking unity just for unity's sake. Listen, I'm not saying that we are to unite with those who oppose the truths of Scripture. I'm not saying that we are to unite with those who reject that Christ is the only way to heaven. But rather, as the Apostle Paul is writing to this church at Philippi, he is exhorting, he is urging them to have unity among brothers and sisters in Christ who hold to the same fundamental doctrines of the faith. The Church of Christ is perhaps one of the most complex and the most diverse gatherings of people that there is. In Christ, in Christ God brings people together, as we, as we said, from all different walks of life, from all different backgrounds, from all different social upbringings from different economic divides, from different races and ethnicities, different heritages and cultures. And rather than us coming together and God being glorified through that, the sad truth of the matter is that often we allow our differences to come between us and Christ. And those differences become points of contention. Those differences that we all have, those are supposed to be united in Christ, those Differences divide us. Charles Spurgeon said that Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It's his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. Because the church is made up of a diverse group of people, there has to be an intentional, a, a purposeful desire and striving together to keep the spirit of peace and unity. So what I want to do this morning is, as we look at these first four verses in chapter 2, I want us to be reminded of the centrality and the importance of unity. But then I also want to look at the why and the how to, to, to how Christian unity is attained. So I'm going to approach this text a little different this morning. We're going to be in these first four verses, but rather than starting in verse 1, I want us to look at verse 2 first. In verse 2, the Apostle Paul gives his request for unity, his request for unity. Look at verse 2. The Apostle Paul says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. This is the same call that we saw last week in verse 27 of chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul called for the church to stand fast in one spirit, to strive together with one mind. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with one another, by loving one another, and by striving and working together with the same mind and purpose. You know, as I look at this verse, as I look at verse 2, and I see this heart and this desire, this request for unity among brethren that the Apostle Paul has, I am reminded of what unity is not. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity means that we are all the exact same. When you think of uniformity, maybe you think of soldiers, or, or you can think of Star Wars, think of stormtroopers. They all have 
the, they have the same purpose, but they're also all the exact same. They have their, their uniform on, they're carbon copies of one another. You can't tell them apart from each other. But when it comes to biblical unity, biblical unity is not that. True spiritual unity comes from within. It's a matter of the heart. When you look at this call, the one is the Apostle Paul has. He says to have one mind, to have one love, to be in one accord. It's, a, it's, it's an inward bond. It's a, it's a bond from the heart. See, uniformity is the result of outward pressure when unity is the result of a transformed heart. Unity is voluntary. Uniformity, uniformity is compelled. Unity is an inward condition. Uniformity is an outward form. But sadly, I think that oftentimes as Christians, we get this idea that in order to be made in the image and likeness of Christ, that we've all got to be carbon copies of one another. You know, I've said, I said on Wednesday, we were having a um, Bible study. We talked about this a little bit. And, you know, the, the Bible college that I went to, I'm, I'm thankful for the Bible college, but there were times when I felt like rather than trying to make me into the image of Christ, they wanted to make me into the image of the president that was at that college, the leader of that college. You know, to them, the ultimate image of who Christ is is this man. And so in doing so, they wanted us to forego of, you know, all of our background and all of our heritage and wanted to make us into so that we look like this man rather than the image of Christ. The family of God is diverse. Listen, God gifted us. God, God equipped us. He gives us different personalities, different experiences for a reason. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible talks about how God gives different gifts to the church and different, he gives teachers, he gives apostles, he gives evangelists, and it's all for the building and the edifying and the maturity of the saints. And in the same way, though we are one in Christ, we are still unique. We are still who we are. We don't have to be one another. God doesn't erase our abilities. He doesn't erase our personal preferences. He doesn't remove distinctions like gender and age. He doesn't remove your culture, your, your heritage. Any call to unity that requires you to give in to partisan allegiance, any call to unity that requires you to discard of your heritage, that conflates culture and social class norms with spiritual obligations, it's not a call to biblical unity, but rather it's a call to assimilation. It's a call to mere uniformity. You know, as Christians, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are not identical twins. We don't have to be. Listen, Cheryl is able to reach different people than Natia can reach. Miss Marlene is given to the church for a different reason than Brother Jared is given. I'm given for a different reason than Brother Jerry is given. And that's the beauty of the church is that when all of our cultural differences and all of our backgrounds aside, when they come together, that they come together and they glorify God as the outside world looks at that unity and how a group of misfits that would never get along outside of these walls can come together with the same purpose and the same mind. In verse 2, we see this request for gospel oneness, for spiritual unity, for this unity within the body. 
And while in verse 2 we see Paul's request, I want to go back now to verse 1. Because in verse 1, Paul gives his reason for unity. Look at verse 1. He says, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any vows and mercies. When you go back to verse 1, Paul begins to build his case, per se, for why we should be united. He does this by using an if-then statement. So basically what Paul is saying is that if verse 1 is true, then verse 2 should ensue. He builds, this, he builds this case by giving the Philippian church five blessings that they share in common through the gospel of Christ. The first one he says is, is there any consolation in Christ? That, that word consolation in the Greek is the word paraclesis. And what paraclesis is, it refers to a source of comfort in times of discouragement. So what Paul is saying is, is Christ your source of comfort. Not only does he say there's a consolation of Christ, he then says, is there comfort from love? So if Christ is the source of comfort, the comfort that he offers comes through his love. We are comforted that he saved us. We are comforted that his love forgave us, that it sustains us, that his love is with us in our suffering, that it's with us in the valleys and the mountaintops. Listen, we are comforted that his love extends grace, that his love extends mercy. Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Paul says, have you been made one in the Holy Spirit, in the Spirit of God? Listen, when you call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, you are sealed, you are brought into that family of God and sealed by the Holy Spirit. You know, once separated, you now become one. Paul tells the church at, at Corinth, he says, for we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. Is there fellowship in the spirit? Have you been made one? Are there any vows and mercies? That word vows is a deeply felt compassion. Is there any affection? Is there any mercies? Is there any sympathy? in the gospel message? Is there any vows and mercies in the person and work of Christ? And as the Apostle Paul asked these questions to the church at Philippi, no doubt they would have answered with an emphatic yes to every single one. Yes, Christ is my source of comfort. Yes, there is comfort from Christ's love. Yes, we are made one in the Spirit. Yes, there is affection and mercy in the gospel. And what the Apostle Paul is doing is that by building this case, he is leaving them to an inevitable conclusion, which then brings you to verse 2, which we went over. And the truth is that the Apostle Paul says, if this is true, then that must be true. So if, if, if Christ offers encouragement, if there's comfort in the love of Christ, if you have been made one through the Holy Spirit, then unity is inevitable. Unity is inexcusable. You kind of think of it this way. Maybe you would say to your child, did I buy your clothes? Yes. Did I wash your clothes? Yes. Did I dry your clothes? Yes. So then you should fold and put your clothes away. 
because of what Christ has done in, because of what Christ has done for, because of what Christ has done through us, disunity with one another is inexcusable. Yet the truth of the matter is that while disunity is inexcusable, unity is not always easy. Being unified with one another is not natural. Once again, you bring all these different people together and there's gonna be conflict. There's there's gonna be there's gonna be competing that goes on, there's gonna be jealousy that goes on. So as we look at verses three and four, Paul gives the recipe for unity. And verse two, he gives his request, and verse one, he gives his reason. Because of the gospel message, because of what Christ has done for you, it only makes sense to be unified together. And then verse three and four, he explains to the church at Philippi how do we attain gospel unity? In verse 3, Paul says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Division outside of biblical grounds, division that is not because of heresy, that is not because of moral wrong, but division that is usually based on our preferences and our desires is usually called by, caused by selfishness and pride. You know, the interesting thing about pride is that it's one of those areas of life where the Lord flips the script from what society says. You know, society views pride as a virtue, I remember even growing up myself, I, 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 pride was one of the biggest things that I struggled with, but I was taught to be proud. I, I was taught, you know, you should be proud in some ways, but when you don't control and bring that, that under the authority of Christ, it can lead to you being conceited. It can lead to you being vain. It can lead to contentions. It can lead to constant fighting when you think that you're better than others, when you think that your way is the only way when nobody can tell you anything. And while society sees pride as a virtue, the Bible tells us that God hates pride. There's multiple verses throughout Scripture. James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. John says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In Proverbs, we see that when pride comes, then comes disgrace, that the Lord detests the proud of heart. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us that pride goes before destruction. You know, Paul hits on this idea of pride, and he's telling them, don't let anything be done with selfish motive. He says, don't let it be done through strife or vainglory. And in verse 4, he says, look not every man on his own thing. So not only don't let it be done with selfish motive, with, with it all being about you, but don't let everything within the church be just about what interests you either. You know, often if we are true and honest with ourselves, when we look at division within the church, when we look at church splits and we look at relationships that have broken, when we look at schisms and gossip and backbiting and fighting that happens within the church, 
Selfishness and pride is often the root of it. Proverbs 13.10 says that by pride comes nothing but strife, comes nothing but fighting. So then the question becomes, how do we go from prideful division to gospel unity? And the Apostle Paul tells us this, through humility. We come into unity with one another through being humble. Gospel unity is centered on the truths of Scripture. It's, it's we, we unite on the truths. We unite on Christ. We unite on the foundational doctrines of our faith. But then it begins when it is no longer about you. Pride works through strife and vainglory. Pride looks at the individual's own interest. But humility thinks highly of others. Humility puts the interests and the desires and the wants of others before our own. You know, I've heard it said this way that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking less about yourself. You know, and the Apostle Paul basically said this also. He says that the way that we attain humility is through lowliness of mind. He says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Pride says it's all about me. Humility says, woe is me. Lowliness of mind only comes when you accept that you are a flawed, sinful being, just as much in need of grace, just as much in need of mercy as the person that you disagree with. Listen, pride says I'm better than that person. Pride says my way is the right way. Humility recognizes that we are both just beggars looking for bread, that we are both sinners in need of a savior. Listen, when you marvel in what God has done for you, when you, when you take the lowly mind, when you see yourself in sight of your sin and all that God did on the cross to save you from that, it becomes a whole lot easier to serve others. It becomes a whole lot easier to put others first when you take a step back and say, woe is me. Who am I? Who am I? One evangelist when asked what he considered the best safeguard against pride, replied, I know nothing better than to keep my eye on my great sinfulness. Listen, if there's anything great within us, it's not us. If there's anything great for those who don't know Christ, it's our sinfulness. And for those who know Christ, if there's anything great that is within you, it is Christ. It is nothing that you have done Nothing that you are, nothing that you can be, but it's only because of Christ through you. In Philippians 1, it is Christ first. And then in Philippians 2, it is others next. In Philippians 1, we see Paul, the soul winner. And then in Philippians 2, we see Paul, the servant. I'm reminded of the, the, the acrostic joy when it speaks of joy for the Christian. And J, Jesus first. O, others next. Y, you last. You know, when you practice humility, let's, 
bring it to a practical standpoint. Now, what does this mean for us today? How do we practice humility in our own church? How do we make sure that, that we're not living prideful lives? How do we ensure that we are united together, that we put our differences aside? And the thing is, when you practice humility, rather than asking what can others do for me, or what can my church do for me, it becomes what can I do for others? What can I do for my church? When you practice humility, you begin to forsake comfort, and you begin to cling to Christ. Listen, when you unify through humility, racial barriers are broken. Martin Luther King in the 1960s said that the most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. on Sunday. And the sad reality is that in 2023, it's not much different. You know, we're not willing to take the humble approach because there's a different background or culture or heritage than I have. We find it hard to worship with one another. And instead, we have churches that are segregated. We have churches that are separated from one another because they're not willing to give up what they like. They're not willing to give up what, what makes them comfortable. They're not willing to meet other people where they are. You know, the funny thing is that when we do that, we are losing sight of what heaven is going to be like. You know, in heaven, we're not going to have segregated worship. In heaven, it's not going to be your group over here and that group over there. But we see in Revelation 7, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, listen, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Listen, in heaven, there's going to be this perfect unity, this glorious harmony as all cultures and backgrounds come together. So as churches, why do, not, why do we not strive for that in the here and now? But you know, when you live a life of humility, when you accept that you are no different, that you are both made in the image of God, it is attainable. There is able to be diversity in our churches. Not only are racial barriers broken, but economic lines are crossed. It's another sad truth that often in churches there's a divide between rich and poor. Where poor are looked down upon like they're second class citizens. And humility reminds us that we are both beggars, that we are both in need of a savior, that though I may have more in this world, that when I get to heaven, that person can have a whole lot more than I do. Humility crosses generational or humility. When we unify in humility, generational worship ensues. Perhaps one of the biggest divisions in churches today is the generational divide in many of them. And when I say this, I'm speaking to both young and old. We're both at fault here. You know, oftentimes we go to church because there's a nostalgic feel to it. We go to church because they sing what I like to sing. You know, for the young guys, we go to churches that are hip. We go to churches that are cool. Rather than going to church to worship our Savior, we go to church to worship ourselves. Because that's what happens when you put your preferences before Christ. You're no longer worshiping Jesus, but you're worshiping self. 
Listen, unity is the goal. Humility is the secret. In verse 1, Paul gives his reason for unity. In verse 2, he gives his request for unity. And then verse 3, he reminds us that it's only through the humble mind, that it's only through humility, that there can truly be unity in the body, that we can truly come together as one. I read a quote this week. It said, if I consider you above me and you consider me above you, then a marvelous thing happens. We have a community where everyone is looked up to and no one is looked down on. You know, my prayer for Landmark, or my prayer for us here this morning is that we would live lives, that we would lead lives collectively, that strive towards being a part of a unity, that strive towards peace and love in our church, that we would focus on what matters most, the gospel, and that we'd be willing to put our preferences aside, that, that we would be willing to forego our desires, that we'd be willing to forego our wants if it means that somebody else would come to Christ, that we would put Jesus first, others next, and ourselves last. The truth of the matter is, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. It's about the gospel. It's about the, the, the truths of, of, of the gospel message getting out to the masses. When we are united, we are stronger. When we are united, not only are we stronger, but Christ is seen bigger. And I just want to give you, before I end, I want to give you just a verse. And maybe even write this verse down. Just something to meditate on. And just to think about. This is verse in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying before his crucifixion. And thank you. This is the, the true Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father before he was crucified. And in John chapter 17, verse 21, just think about the words of Jesus. He says that they all, speaking of his followers, of disciples, as of Christians, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Listen to what he says. That the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus says that when they are one together, when they are one in Christ, and it sends a message out to the world that the message and the, the gospel is true. That the world believes that the Father sent Jesus because there's nothing else that could bring this group of misfits together. There's nothing else that could cross the barriers that the gospel crosses, that could transcend the lines that the gospel transcends. Unity in the body. Every head bowed and eyes closed. And dear Lord, just...